Well, it's nice to see you. Uh, we have a little select band again this morning, but uh, we might be joined in a minute or two by some others. Um, what I will say at the beginning, just uh, particularly for the benefit of those on the podcast, um, don't forget that the notes for all of the sessions, that, at least the ones that we've done so far, are available on the King's Church website, which is kingschurch.co.uk. Uh, under resources, there's a TLS page, and uh, you can download the the PDFs there of what, we, what we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, and the other thing I'll say just as a reminder is that this is the last TLS before the summer break. So there's nothing in July and August, um, but we come back in September uh, for the rest of the year. So uh, this morning we're going to talk about free will. And you might think, well, that's a bit esoteric. It's a bit sort of you know does it really matter you know it's a bit sort of philosophical um, however uh, depending on how we think about these things um, it can really dramatically change our view of God and our view of ourselves and everything actually um, so I remember a few years ago I, I used to run a, a discussion group called Bible Believing Blokes uh, which was mostly blokes, but we did have one or two honorary blokes <laughs> in there. Uh, but it was mostly blokes. And almost every discussion we had seemed, every so often, it came back to this question of free will you know, and, and God's sovereignty. And um, and so, yeah, we, we remarked how often that seemed to, the, the, the mystery seemed to head in that direction. Um, so we're going to be looking at a few isms today. Uh, I'm not too fond of isms, but sometimes they're a useful way of encapsulating uh, different strands of thought um, and the reason for that as I say is that um, there are Christians that think quite differently to the way we do um, we may not realize that and they may not realize that there are Christians that think differently to them as well uh, but it's important that we understand what the issues are and to know why we believe what we believe and, and what the implications are if we don't so that's the sort of rough introduction but as I've said here at the, uh, the top of the page, it's a rather historic argument <laughs> of how you reconcile these two ideas of, of a sovereign God, a, a powerful God, an all-powerful God, with a genuine choice, you know, what is free will for human beings. And the Bible seems to uh, support and attest to both truths, but there isn't really an easy way to understand how they coexist or... It's one of these things that's a, a, a hard one to grapple with. So different strands of theology have cropped up throughout the history of the church with different views. And I remember as a, as a teenager, uh, I'd only been a Christian one to two years, mm. one of the subjects of conversation amongst my friends, mm -hmm. um, apart from the return of Christ, which is always a popular one, um, was, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? And, you know, you think, well... Do, do people have those conversations now? Yeah, I don't know. But it was a real debate. And, um, and in this whole area of, of free will, it usually, the, the sort of the fine point of it all usually is, is around salvation. Who is saved and how are people saved? And, you know, does God choose who becomes a Christian? Do people have a real choice and so on? And that's really where this subject of free will uh, really hits the that's where the rubber hits the road so let's have a little look at, at John Calvin uh, because Calvinism is one of the, the huge uh, strands of thought in this whole area um, Calvin was a sort of second generation reformer coming along after Luther and others he was born in 1509 in France so I presume he wasn't called John Calvin it must have been a more Francophone name, but uh, we, he's, we've anglicised it, I guess. But he spent a lot of his life in Geneva, in Switzerland, and his influence just spread massively from there right across Europe and continues today. And he was apparently quite a shy guy; he's fairly reserved, um, and he was reluctant, really. He was reluctant leader, you know. But he was made, you know, people wanted him because of his thinking. Um, and he ended up pretty much ruling Geneva. You know, he was kind of the, the guy in charge. It wasn't a harsh rule in some ways, and that he always operated through the, the city authorities. Um, but it was quite tough in other ways. You know, he, um, there were 
punishments for doing wrong things and so on. And basically what he wanted, he had a vision of seeing the kingdom of God mm. established in the earth mm. and in the city itself. So he really <coughs> took, I think he took Augustine's vision of the city of God and said, let's have a city where God's will is done. Mm. So he was quite ahead of his time in some ways. Um, and you know so even the civil government and everything and it really it just transformed Geneva and even today you, you know arguably you can trace back the success of Geneva right back to those days um, there was a survey by Mercer I've written down here in 2009 uh, which said that Geneva has the third highest quality of life of any city in the world and there's still a lot of commerce and banking and diplomacy you know all of that is 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 going on in Geneva and, and you could arguably trace it back to that that time um, so one of the major things oh that's the, the coat of arms of Geneva by the way in case you were wondering uh, one of the things he's really famous for is Calvin um, is the Institutes of the Christian religion which is a, a weighty tome um, which was really his life's work and it went through various revisions until he was happy with it and it is a theological work but it, he didn't mean it to just be theological he wanted to teach the ordinary people to to be godly uh, and to be able to live the Christian life which is a really good motivation um, at the center of his theology was the the idea of God's utter sovereignty and uh, the, the responsibility, the duty of humanity to glorify God. So if you think to the, the, the so-called shorter catechism, you know, it starts, what is the chief end of man? What's the chief purpose of humanity? It says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So you can see the strands of Calvin coming through that. Um, so he followed Augustine, who was some centuries before, but Augustine's th thought was that uh, salvation was purely a work of God and that God predestined some people to be saved and others to be condemned mm -hmm. so this is something called double predestination mm -hmm. so this concept is that God says you're saved you're not um, now that Calvin developed that but his followers Calvin's followers actually crystallized the thinking even further and, and made it almost more extreme in some ways um, and so Calvinism became a, a system of thought which is still followed by many many people today it's very popular in North America um, not quite so popular over here um, but still quite a lot of people particularly in the reformed churches um, will be strongly yeah. Calvinist and today you've got people like uh, John Piper, Don Carson, writers like that who are kind of the new Calvinists and that's what they that's what they they call themselves so yeah sure yeah when I was at a university in London um, I came from a um, house church background and uh, I was desperately searching for some kind of charismatic community there yeah I stumbled across um, Spurgeon's church in, ah, um, yeah in the tabernacle of Elephant and Castle and uh, that's when I encountered Tulip for the first Okay, time. yeah, we we're just about to talk about so, that, uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so uh, there, there was, um, yeah, a big um, debate and yeah. struggle, really, and yeah, yeah, yeah. In my early years, but yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing because it's quite a logical system. Yes. So if you are logical, if you are, if you like things to be tidy, um, it's a nice way it's attractive to some people and there's a sort of purity about it in a way they f they feel I feel it has major problems <laughs> it definitely has major problems um, but it's a sort of consistent way of thinking and to be honest um, in the best will of the world and not not poking aspersions yes. at any particular person there's an arrogance there sometimes yes. uh, which is our system is the best system and it does go by the name uh, well the summary of it you could use the acronym TULIP as, as you mentioned Steve so um, each letter is a sort of aspect of their system of thought so the T for TULIP is total depravity 
Now that doesn't mean that every human being without God is utterly depraved. Um, the idea of that is that it just means that every area, every aspect of human life is polluted by sin. And so we are incapable of saving ourselves or even of choosing God. And you can sort of, you sort of think, well, okay, I, I do think that, you know, human thinking is polluted by sin and every area of human life is affected by sin. But the, the, the thrust of the tea in Tulip is that we are incapable of making a free choice. We cannot choose God. That's, what, that's really where they're coming from. Um, the you is something called unconditional election. So the idea of that is that God chooses some people to be saved, um, although not all, and it's regardless of any virtue they might have or any good thing that they've done. And so again, you can sort of think, well, okay, yes, it's by grace, it's not by our virtue, but the, the thrust of it is God just chooses and we don't have a choice. That's really what they're saying. So this is this double predestination. God chooses some people to be saved and some people not to be. And that fits in with the T. And then when you get to the L of Tulip, this is the one that really gets my goat more than any of the others, actually, is limited atonement. Uh, and the idea of limited atonement is that Jesus' death and resurrection was only for the saved, only for the elect, the, the chosen ones. And Jesus did not die for anyone else. Now, you may already be able to think of scriptures that come to mind that would suggest that's not the case. But um, this, is, this is what the whole thing pivots on, is that Jesus only died for the saved. And it's a necessary thing to say if you're going to say all the rest. Mm -hmm. you know. So we would say, well, no, no, Jesus died for the whole world. It's not limited. But Calvinists would come back and argue okay, if it's not limited in scope, it must be limited in effectiveness. That's their argument. I'm not saying I agree with it. But what they would say is, it's, like, it's either, assuming not everybody is saved, either the atonement is limited in who it applies to, or, as they say, or the atonement is limited in its effectiveness to actually bring about what it was supposed to bring about. So they would say, but you have a limited atonement too, you Arminians, and we'll come on to Arminius in a bit. But they, he would say, well, you know, you, you believe it's a limited effectiveness rather than limited um, scope. scope. Yeah. We can hold that thought, yeah. we can hold that thought because I don't think it's as simple as that. Um, anyway. I think there's another way we can look at it. But the other thing, of course, is the, you could say, well, okay, it's, it's unlimited in scope and it's unlimited in effectiveness, and that brings you straight to universalism. <laughs> um, but, you know, so, but anyway, the, but you, it's interesting to note that a Calvinist might have a problem with an evangelist or somebody standing at the front of a meeting and offering yes. God's love to all, yes. because they would say, well, you can't do that. You don't know if they're elect. Yes. And, and you, you could say, you know, the Calvinists would, would say, no, no. You, can't sell, you cannot tell somebody that Jesus died for them. Yeah. You know, so if you go out on the streets and say, Jesus died for you, the Calvinists would stand there going, no, you can't say that. Mm. You don't know that. You don't know if they're elect. Mm. Um, which, yeah, is not great in my view. But that's, that was the L, the limited atonement. So that's what they, they say. The next one, the eye of tulip, is the irresistible grace of God. And this is the idea that God sovereignly brings the people that he's chosen to a saving faith in Christ in a way that they cannot resist. So in other words, it's again, it's down to you have no choice. You're either saved or you're not saved, but it's not your choice, it's God's. So again, it all fits in with this sort of consistent pattern and then the final one, the P, is the perseverance of the saints, the idea that those that God has chosen um, will stay faithful through their life and, and, and persevere to the end, you know, because it says those who persevere to the end, you know, it, there's a need to, uh, to persevere to the end, to be saved, you know, according to certain scriptures. So the idea, again, with this tulip is that God is, th is throughout doing it all. You know, he, he begins it from predestination, choosing from 
ages past who's going to be saved he calls them gives them the gift of repentance the gift of faith um, right through applying the atonement into their lives and then um, persisting in faith to the end and it's a work of God yeah. from beginning to end just to add to that yeah. when I was part of this church um, they used to have put a lot of emphasis on the gospel service right and you would basically go along and the emphasis would be on um, being made to feel condemned really because right. they, they want to bring people to a sense of shame and guilt yeah. and if people feel that then they would say oh the Holy Spirit's acting on them to bring them to repentance yeah. therefore we can we can teach them right. to Jesus say therefore we can tell them evidence of God's work right. but the effect on, our, on the people going was actually the sense of um, a great sense of, of lack of worth and right. constant condemnation and it was a yeah. not, a, not a nice experience to go through so yeah. especially the gospel is, is, is really affected by their belief yeah there's a flavour that can easily come through. Now, yeah. a lot of the people, you know, I'm not saying that people like John Piper and Don Carson, you know, I'm not saying they don't have a connection with the love of God, and that, you know, that, yeah. but there's they a do. problem. There's a problem that, that can push you in that direction. Yeah. Um, so these things are all sort of interlocking things. You know, you can't really pick and choose. They're, each one is a, is a vital aspect of this Calvinist belief in God's utter sovereignty and the total absence really of any human choice in uh, in the salvation experience or, or whether the people get it or not but the problem the major problem with with this uh, system of double predestination where God predestines some people to be saved and some people to be condemned is that you you really got to face the fact that God creates multitudes of people whose purpose is to be condemned to hell um, they have no chance, absolutely no chance of salvation. From birth, they are doomed through no choice of their own to hell, which according to most Calvinists is ECT. Remember last time we talked about this eternal conscious torment, which is awful. Um, and, you know, this, you kind of have to think, well, what kind of God does that? You know, now John Wesley, the great 18th century preacher called that idea a horrible decree he, he didn't like it at all um, he said that you know this the call to repentance by a Calvinist God is like a jailer calling on prisoners to leave their cells but then refusing to open the doors um, and it's yeah it's it's not it's a very sort of distasteful thing really now obviously as I've said before in these sessions we can't make up our mind simply on emotion but if there's something in us that reacts against it, you know, that there's something there, you know, that isn't, isn't right. It's not necessarily wrong that we feel that way. So other people had seen that as well, long before Wesley. Um, in fact, actually before Augustine, the, the dominant view wasn't so-called double predestination. It was really Augustine that kind of crystallized that and then John Calvin took it further. But after Calvin, um, there's a guy called Jacob Arminius, although his name was actually a Dutch name, Hermanson, or something like that. Don't ask me to pronounce it properly, but he, he chose the Latin name Arminius for some reason. Perhaps it was easier to spell. Um, but this guy really brought um, an alternative view to Calvin, and he's come to symbolise the, the sort of the main alternative view which is Arminianism that we were mentioning before so the idea of that of Arminius is that God chooses certain people to be saved based on his foreknowledge that they will one day choose him um, so he would say that God's uh, grace makes it possible for people to be saved but it doesn't make it inevitable um, he would say, no, Jesus didn't just die for the elect, um, but Jesus died for everyone. And I've got the scripture here, 1 John 2 verse 2, that might have sprung to mind earlier. It says, um, he, that is Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world, which seems to go against the, the L in Tulip, that limited atonement. So um, he wrote down four decrees of God and this is sort of Arminius's 
system. It's not as, as rigid and detailed, but it, it's basically put down these four things. Firstly, God decreed to appoint Christ as the mediator to save humanity. Uh, secondly, God decreed to accept and save all who repent and believe in Christ and to reject those who refuse. Thirdly, God decreed to provide the means necessary for people to repent and believe. So you've got the, the idea of God does give grace. He does is a gift. Repentance and faith are a gift, but they're not um, inevitable. And then fourthly, God decreed to choose certain individuals based on the foreknowledge that they would believe and they would persevere to the end. So what you've got is, is a sort of simple, if you boil it down, for Calvin, we choose God because he has chosen us already. But for Arminius, God chooses us because of his foreknowledge that we will choose him. So it's, it's sort of two ways round. So either we choose God because he chooses us, which is Calvin, or God chooses us because he can see down the line that we're going to choose him and we're going to persevere. And so he, he puts his stamp on that beforehand. And that difference still divides people today in their thinking. That's why we had these conversations when I was a teenager of, are you a Calvinist, are you an Arminian? And I thought, no, I'm definitely not a Calvinist since I worked out what it was. I thought, no, I'm, I'm, I must be an Arminian then. My brother would belong to a, a URC church, a, United Reformed at the time, and he was a Calvinist because that's what his his leader said you know, was the truth. Um, but Calvinists, you know, with the best will in the world, as I say, um, faithful people, many, many of them, obviously, um, tend to believe that their system is the only one that's based on grace alone. Yeah. And their, their, their assertion is that Arminians, mm -hmm. as they tend to group the rest of the people together as, they introduce works, uh, a form of works choice as necessary for salvation. And uh, Arminians kind of, you know, we'd, you know, I group myself loosely in the Arminian camp um, we don't like this idea of, of God choosing not to save certain people, but, but they would say, the Calvinists, well, God doesn't need to save anyone. You know, we're all doomed, you know, we've all rebelled, we, we all deserve hell, mm -hmm. therefore the fact that God saves a few yeah. is, is grace and it's love and it's, uh, it's evidence of the grace of God. But as an Arminian, we'd kind of go, well, that doesn't really sound very nice, you know. <laughs> You know, um, it doesn't sound particularly loving. You know, uh, what sort of love is that? You know, even in human, even in a human yeah. sense, um, it doesn't sound particularly great. You know, got this closed system of limited atonement and lack of free will tends to make God out to be a bully, obsessed with his own glory. You know, it's like, is this a loving father or is this sort of rather egotistical? controlling God. Mm -hmm. um, now Calvinists have seen that, you know, they've seen there is a weakness there, but it, it's difficult for them. So that, um, Don Carson wrote a book which I've read called uh, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And it's a really hard doctrine for a Calvinist particularly. <laughs> and, the, and, and I read it and most of it I was thinking, because at the time I didn't, I didn't know as much of it as I do now, and I was reading it I was thinking Okay, I'll go with that, go with that. And they got to the end, one bit, and I thought, hey? Because he, he had to conclude that God loves the elect differently to how he loves the rest of the world. Because it does say God so loved the world. Yes, yes. And, and so they have to, yes. to grapple with that. Yes. But if God loves them, why is he condemned them to hell yes. with no choice? You know? yes. so, um, yes. so this is why it's a difficult doctrine, especially for a Calvinist. And, and they conclude that the love God has for his people is different to the love he has for the rest of humanity. And, and they use scriptures about Israel in the Old Testament yeah. to support that. Um, so it's a, a tricky one. So the, the debate then rumbles on. Now in actual fact there, there are several different ways of seeing election and, and predestination, but somehow they've all got to resolve this tension between God's power, between his will, you know, the fact that he's sovereign, and human choice, having a, a genuine free will. So we're going to have a, a scone and a bit of a discussion in a minute. I can see the scones are being uh, made ready as we speak. Um, 
So here's a few questions just to get the ball rolling. Um, firstly, which side of the Calvinist-Arminian debate resonates most with you? I have slightly stacked the deck, I must say, in what <laughs> I've said. <laughs> I haven't exactly, you know, I've, I've kind of loaded the dice really on that one. But you could say, well, you know, before you came in today, <laughs> you know, which side resonates most with you? Secondly, does it matter? And if so, why? And I've already, you know, I've been touching on some of this. And here's a couple of questions to people on one side or another. To a Calvinist, you know, one question you could ask is, if God has decided everything that is ever going to happen, and has decided every action, every action that you or I do is decided by God in advance, that's what Calvinists firmly believe, what about prayer? You know, can we ever actually change God's mind? Um, and then fourthly, to an Arminian, um, if God can already see our future choice, is it actually really free anyway? If it's already in the mind of God, what we're going to do, isn't that prefixed? You know, um, that's the uh, the other side. That's the mystery. So let's have a, a short break, and we'll come back and, and look at some other ways of thinking in a bit. Okay, so we've already started to tap into uh, what I want to talk about in part two here. Um, for me, Calvinism tends to prioritise, well it doesn't tend to, it does, prioritise God's sovereignty and glory over his love. So in other words, you get presented with a God where control is central to everything he does. So God, for a Calvinist, God controls every human action. Everything you yeah. do from cradle to grave, every decision you make, even the sinful ones, God has decreed in advance. Which makes it hard to see how God could actually hold anybody accountable for sin. <laughs> um, but also it means that human beings don't really have free will. They're really not much more than robots. We're automatons. You know, that's why I've got a little picture of a, a rather frustrated looking robot there. But according to this view, we're programmed from eternity past to behave in a certain way. And now this, this elevation of God's sovereignty and God's will over love seems a bit strange in the light of Scripture, as you were saying, Maria. You know, the, the Bible does say that, that God is powerful, but it doesn't say God is power. Um, what it does say is that God is love, not just God is loving you know, 1 John 4 verse 8, um, it doesn't say God is power, or God is will, or God is, um, is sovereignty. It describes God in those ways, but it doesn't say that's what God is. But what's the essence of God? The essence of God is God is love. So the biblical emphasis is on his love, not on power or glory. Um, so it's this self-giving love that's at the core of God's being, not control or the desire to be glorified. Um, and quite a few Calvinists are beginning to see this and actually changing their views. So one of them uh, who wrote a book about it, um, Austin Fisher, he said this. Um, he's an ex-Calvinist. He said, God's desire to glorify himself had not only subsumed but consumed all his other desires, so that the only thing I understood about God was that he would glorify himself. Love, justice and goodness had been warped beyond recognition as they were sucked into the black hole of glory. Strong stuff. But, you know, a number of people are beginning to see this and think, I don't want anything more to do with this, because this is just... Yeah. What kind of image of God is this that wants to glorify himself all the time so much that everything else is, yeah. is subsumed under that? Um, but when we looked at the Trinity, what we saw was that the Bible presents God as seeking relationship with people. And the nature of relationship, of loving relationship, requires the giving of free choice. Yes. It can't be a loving relationship if you don't allow people freedom of choice to enter in or not, and, and how to respond in that way. So for me, God makes himself vulnerable to his creation, which is an amazing thought. Now, Calvinists object strongly to that, and it says, oh, that makes God seem weak, you know, as though he's forlornly, you know, looking, at, looking towards us and 
we're stubbornly refusing, we hold all the cards and, and God's this kind of weak character. But is it real weakness or is it incredible strength that God voluntarily relinquishes uh, some of his control? You know, could it be that the almighty God is almighty enough to be able to take the risk of limiting, deliberately, voluntarily limiting his control over us? And, and where does that put us? Yeah. Yeah. You mean it? He took the in risk. Jesus. He yeah, took, took the risk yeah. Jesus would come as a baby and would fulfill everything. That yeah, he yeah, that's right. Yeah, he, he made Jesus vulnerable to to creation in a massive way as a baby. Yeah. Um, but only a truly sovereign God would dare to do that. Yeah. Um, and if you if you have the view of actually God voluntarily limits His control over us because he wants a relationship with us then that's how much better is that than a view of God who just controls us all the time yeah. you know what it's a much safer much more loving much much more biblical view of what God is rather than us being like puppets on the end of a string yeah. and so I would say you know we talked about the elder of tulip this limited atonement and how the Calvinist would say well it's either limited in scope which they believe as in um, it only applies to the elect, to the chosen ones. Or it's limited in effectiveness because not everyone's saved. But I would say no, it's not that. It's God has limited his control. He's, he's voluntarily limited control. Not his power. He hasn't limited that. He hasn't limited the scope. He's just voluntarily limited his control over us. Um, and that would make a lot more sense actually of the, of the existence of evil. You know, if God is all-powerful, why does evil exist? You know, but if God has voluntarily limited his control over his created beings, then that opens the door um, for, for evil. It becomes a possibility because there's a genuine choice. So what we're doing here is we're not questioning God's power, but we're questioning the nature of power. You know, is it about control? Mm -hmm. Is power really about the ability to control other people or other created beings? Or is power the ability to empower others? You know, if God is all-powerful and he chooses to share that with us, that's a much bigger vision than of this cosmic puppeteer who basically controls everything according to his whim and fancy. So how does this self-limiting of God work? And this is where we're going to get into another ism, um, which is just a, a way of capturing a, a particular train of thought. It's a branch of theology that tries to answer this question. Um, I'm not saying I fully subscribe to this view, but I'm going to tell you what it is. Um, it's called the open view of God, or open theism. Now, according to this view, God has fixed certain things in the future which will definitely happen but he's left other aspects of the future undecided leaving it to created beings to determine the exact course of events the, the path that everything is taken now I quite like science fiction and I'm quite you know I used to be quite into Doctor Who you know this is very much the Doctor Who universe this is mm -hmm. because there are certain key points in time which are fixed and which have to happen and then there are other things that can be altered you know so it just makes sense to me um, but in any case, this, this idea of certain things being fixed and other things being flexible for human beings or other created beings to, to, to help shape, that's whatever is the truth. It's certainly the way it feels, isn't it? I mean, that's the way life feels. Yeah. You know, we pray, we act, we believe we can make a difference. Um, even though we, we can be confident that the gospel will triumph, that, that you know, creation will be renewed, that God is going to restore the cosmos, we know this is going to happen. But we do believe we can affect the way it happens and the, and the path things take. You know, scripture actually records God changing his mind and reacting to people, reacting to their prayer and to, to the decisions they make. Now, the Calvinists would come straight back and say, that's just anthropomorphism. This is God using human language to describe a deeper reality you know and it's sort of it, they would say that's only the way things appear you know it's just not really like that it helps us understand God but the open theist would say no 
the way things appear is the way things actually are. Um, in other words, God really does adapt to our actions and to our prayers. And if that's true, then that's a massive spur to, to act. It's a massive encouragement that we are significant in a massive way. And it makes more sense of ruling with Christ, reigning, being co-heirs and co-rulers with God in creation, doesn't it? If we can actually affect things. So I think a lot of Christians would agree with, with what I've been saying there. This is going to stretch our thinking a little because open theism goes even further than that. There's a group of theologians and writers who come under the category of open theists or the, the people with the open view of God. And what they say, they've, they've sort of pushed this thinking even further. What they say is if, if people have a real human choice, then God actually chooses not to know what they're going to choose. So this is the way they explain how God's limited control works. They say that the future is partially unknown even to God. Um, now to some people, when this thinking started to come out, you know, probably a couple of decades ago now, and it, and it still has this effect, people think, well, hang on, that makes him a bit less than God. If God doesn't know the future, or all of the future, is that making him less than God? However, the open theists would come back and say, well, actually, it would take a great deal more skill and strength and, and wisdom to be able to manage a universe like that and still achieve what you want to achieve um, than a God that could see everything in advance. So, you know, you, I, I've thought about this and you think, well, does it reduce... There's a concept called the omniscience of God. In other words, he knows everything. Does this idea of the future being partially unknown to God and, and our choices being unknown to God voluntarily, does that reduce omniscience, the divine omniscience? And again, the open theists would say no, because God knows everything that it's possible to know within his own self-imposed limitations. So the example they might give is, does God know the name of Henry VIII's seventh wife? And you say, well, he didn't have a seventh wife, so obviously not. You know, so there are certain things that God doesn't know then. But it's not possible to know who, what the name of Henry VIII's seventh wife was, because she didn't exist. So the open theists would say, well, the future doesn't exist yet. Therefore, if God doesn't know it, that doesn't reduce his omniscience, because it's not actually possible to know what the future is. So they would say, you know, this isn't about um, the nature of God's omniscience, this is about the nature of the future. Um, they would also, I think, just to kind of get us back onto slightly safer territory, assuming for a moment we accepted that, okay, the future is partially unknown. What we then go on to say is, well, God not only knows one future, he knows every possible future. So this is why I've got all these branches here of human choice leading to different possibilities. But if God has seen every branch, every possible choice that you and I and everybody else in the world could make, and he's seen every possible future, and he knows what to do about every possible outcome that could happen, and yet can still bring it round to what he wants to happen in the end, then that, if anything, enhances our view of God and his omniscience and his power and his skill and his ability. Um, it does raise questions about time though um, because there's often an assumption and I think C.S. Lewis probably developed this thinking uh, as I recall where God is outside of time instead of um, we experience time gradually moving forward uh, the past we can remember the future we don't know and we're moving forward and we see one point in time at once and the concept that many people have is that God is somehow if time is a line going from the past stretching off into the future God is kind of outside the line and can see it all from the side and sees everything that's going to happen if the open theists are, are right that's not quite how it works so God for them moves along in time with us yeah. however you could argue, well, because he's seen every possible outcome, he's still sort of outside time because he can see everything perfectly. So, again, it, it raises questions about the universe and about creation. Um, 
So yeah, so if God, if, if, if the, the issue with God being outside time and being able to see it all, if there's just one future, is this question I raised before the break, which is if God can see in advance what our choices are, is it still really a free choice? And that's where it becomes a mystery <laughs> again. Um, how can it, if it's in God's mind already, isn't that actually just God's determined it, you know? So we're struggling because we don't understand, you know, that, that we don't understand God really because God is too huge. One issue that I would have with it, um, by the way, some people find this concept of God not knowing what people's choices are really helpful. Um, I've come across people who, uh, for example, somebody gets married to someone who they believe is a good upstanding Christian and then a short way down the line <clears throat> it all goes to pot because they turn their backs on God and uh, and the person could say to God and had said to God, well, why did you let me marry that person? If you knew what they were going to do. Yeah. But according to open theism, God could turn around and say, well, I didn't know what they were going to do. They had a choice. Mm -hmm. They could have gone that way, they could have gone that way. So some people find that concept helpful because they think, okay, and in a way it gets God off the hook. Mm -hmm. um, I don't particularly go for that. <laughs> um, I think that there's there's depths to God that we you know. I'll talk about this in a moment, but um, I, I'm still kind of wrestling with where, how does this work. But this is the problem with taking yeah. one ism and taking it to its logical conclusion, yeah. because the logical conclusion is God doesn't know what people are going to choose. God is God is moving along in time with us. Um, and I'm not sure that's actually true. Um, and that suggests God's purposes always for us to have a really nice life. Um, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, God knows that it was going to take pain to get to where we're mm. going to get to. But yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, yeah. Mm. Um, one thing that I did question that I've kind of answered, I think, for myself, if, if open theism was true, um, can we still say, well, whatever I face in the future, God has seen and has, and has been there before me? And for many people, that's a really precious mm. concept that whatever comes before, God's been there, he's seen it, and he knows how we're going to deal with it and so on. I think you can still say that with open theism because God has seen every possible future. So not only has God seen the one that eventually transpires, but he's seen every possible one. So God, wherever we do go, God has already stood there and he has already been there. Um, but it messes with your head, <laughs> this sort of stuff. And I, I know I'm, I'm kind of, in introducing all this stuff, I'm messing with your heads a bit. Um, so it does raise the question, if, if open theism is true and God doesn't know what people are going to choose, what the sticking point for me is how does election and predestination then work? How does God's foreknowledge work? If he genuinely doesn't know who's going to respond to the gospel, how can some people be predestined? Unless everybody is. Um, but how does his foreknowledge work? You know, does it, do, are we forced into universalism? Um, how does God know in advance if he can't see it? And so for me, that's a weakness of open theism is the whole idea of this, this election. God, you know, Arminius said, you know, God sees who's going to choose him. He sees who's going to persevere to the end and God predestines them um, in response to that. And with open theism, that would be impossible. But I've no doubt you could read around the subject, read into that theology, and they'd probably have some answers to it. Um, final thoughts, I suppose, for me, um, I, I subscribe to some of open theism, this idea that we can influence events, that, that, that things aren't fixed, that God isn't in control of us. I don't really go along with the, in the final analysis, God doesn't know what we're going to choose. I, I don't really go for that. Um, whether we believe in open theism or not, in its entirety, I think human beings are far more influential than we think. And I think... Calvinism reduces humans. It elevates God's glory and elevates God's sovereignty and power, but it reduces humanity to be less than the image of God. If we're truly made in the image of God, then we can share his, his 
an element of his sovereignty. We are co-rulers. Um, so God has chosen to interact with us and to make us co-rulers in that way. So uh, where are my scriptures? What have I done with them? Uh, Revelation 3, uh, 21, it says, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Mm-hmm. You know, we're there to, to, to rule with him, to sit on his throne and share in his authority. Romans 8, 17, uh, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. You know, in the incarnation, God has elevated humanity and joined us with the Trinity. Yeah. He's joined the created with the creator. Second Peter 1, verse 4, this is a really strong one. Through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature. You know, we participate in the nature of God, and that that's what Calvinism, I think, undermines, um, because it, it reduces who we actually are. Um, we're not saying God's not God, you know, we're not saying we are God, but we participate in the divine. You know, we're united with God, in, in a, you know, it's difficult to see where creation ends and God begins, you know, in Christ, yeah. he's two natures in one person, you know, so, and we're all joined to God in Christ. So rather than keeping a monopoly on sovereignty, <clears throat> God has united us with the Trinity so that we can share in ruling over the universe. And more importantly than that rule is relationship. So to have a genuine two-way relationship with God, and if you just read through the whole chapter of John 17, and see the interaction between Jesus and the Father, and, and our interaction, and our union with the Father and with Jesus. It's just amazing. Um, 2 Peter 1, 4, I said that already about the, the divine nature. Um, so my, my own tentative view, and it is tentative because this is a massive mystery, and this is why whenever we did the Bible Believing Blokes a years, those years ago, we always tended to <laughs> end up down this avenue of the tension between free will and God's, God's uh, sovereignty, um, is that there are different depths in God, that God is a God of infinite depth that we'll never stop exploring. And he's the God of the impossible. What to us is impossible, to God is possible. So maybe in the depths of God, he can actually know what we are going to choose even though he is voluntarily limiting his control over us. And it's possible that outside the confines of our limited human brains, that God can do that, you know. Um, And it certainly would be a great mystery. Um, I was thinking about this in the light of the Trinity, and you've got the three persons of the Trinity, and they enjoy relationship with one another. They've got free will. Each person in the Trinity has a free will. Um, <laughs> yeah, I typed it up after the break from what you were saying. Um, we uh, each one has got free will, but surely they know what the other one's going to choose. But yet there's still relationship and there's still spontaneity there. Uh, One Corinthians two uh, verses ten to eleven says the Spirit, one member of the Trinity. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So you've got the Spirit. He knows the thoughts of the Father and he knows the thoughts of the Son. So I I think that within the Trinity, there is genuine choice. There is genuine relationship, which has to mean that there is freedom in that relationship to choose. And yet the mind of the Trinity is united and they know what the others are going to choose. So if we're united in the Trinity, if we're part of that circle of loving relationship and we've been elevated in Christ into that position, then maybe the union that we have with the Trinity can work in that same way. That God gives us genuine choice to participate in the divine nature, to participate in that Trinitarian circle of freedom, of relationship, of, of voluntarily not trying to control the other and yet still know what we're going to choose. So that's where I am with it. Um, if you try and tie it down fully and take everything to its logical conclusion of any of these three systems that we've talked about, 
I reckon that probably does God a disservice and um, by defining him too tightly um, when actually he wants to be known in relationship rather than just known about. Um, so of course the, just to conclude really the biggest mystery is Christ himself Colossians 2 2 the mystery of God namely Christ and in Christ the human and the divine are united but one thing we really need to use as a guiding principle for us in all this thinking about the Calvinist God the Arminian God the open God God is like Jesus that's the key thing God is like Jesus he embodies the full nature of God you know Hebrews 1 verse 3 you know he's the radiance of God's glory the exact representation of his being uh, Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. And that means he's not a God of control, but he's a God of relationship and he's a God of love. So rather than the immense power and strength of God being the most amazing thing about him, which the, the Calvinism position would be, the fact that God voluntarily cedes control, that he limits his control, he gives control to others and gives them a genuine choice, um, that's the most amazing thing about God, that his treasured human creations who are made in God's image, um, he refrains from controlling them and prioritises relationship instead. And that is the key thing that would make me boot Calvinism into touch completely because Calvinism isn't like that. It isn't about relationship, it's about control. The other thing to say is that if we are in the image of God, we shouldn't be trying to control other people. Mm -hmm. If even the sovereign God doesn't try and control people, neither should we. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean we can't encourage and persuade and exhort, but we can't control. You know, we can, we can point out to people what will be of benefit to them, um, but we can't sort of manipulate and control them. Um, final quote then from, uh, from my favourite Catholic, Maria, uh, Richard Rohr. <laughs> um, he says, the Christian God's power comes through his powerlessness and humility. Our God is much more properly called all vulnerable than almighty, which we should have understood by the constant metaphor of Lamb of God found throughout the New Testament. Amen. Yeah.